0: What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Parliamentary Review podcast, a podcast that puts leadership in focus. I'm your host, Scott Chaloner, and each week I'll be joined by directors, CEOs, CFOs, government ministers, chairmen, presidents, and maybe one day, even footballers. The aim here is to discover who these people really are, the people who get up every morning and make the world work. We discuss the future of British industry and trade deals, government reforms, and of course the innovation and success in the country that makes it all worthwhile in the end. We also look for their take on the current economic and political state of the country, which in this episode sees us cover topical issues such as coronavirus crisis, how education and regulation is affecting the financial advice industry, and of course Boris Johnson. Later on in the episode, you'll also have the chance to hear Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Liz Field of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. That's PIMFA to you and me. But for now. I join Stephen Groves, Director of Affinity Financial Advisors over in West London. We'll be discussing a number of issues from the coronavirus crisis to costs of compliance, educating Britain's youngsters about finance and why this industry isn't a profession that should be as male-dominated as it is. Stephen, welcome. It's great to have you on the programme with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Very kindly to ask and invite No, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you here. Now, Stephen, you're a financial advisor, of course, based over in West London with roughly 20 employees under you. Um, How have you found things in the past few weeks considering the COVID-19 outbreak and all of these measures that have now been put in place?
1: Uh, It's been really busy. obviously the first thing we try to do is make everyone safe. This is the most important thing. We've um, been so busy the last couple of weeks trying to a range that everyone, not certainly the administration staff, can work from home. So if they've got a a PC at home, that's fine. They can work off that. Um, But if they haven't, then we've been out and taken their PC from the office and put it into their home. We've also, because we've got a sort of phone system, VoIP phone system, we're able to take our telephones and plug it into their system at home and then we can actually use it just like an office so if we have an incoming phone call with the incoming phone call will go directly to them at home via the internet so we've been able to manage to do that right now we just started probably yesterday's when we finished we made everybody now is working at home the only thing we have is post and obviously post is quite important in our industry so we have one person going into the office every morning to process the post and get the post in and the post out and then scan it onto um, all the consultants, um, places where they where they come into so they can see where their post is and we can deal with it as and when we need to. Um, the other thing we've done is we've actually made, just in case something happens, we've only got one person in the office that we have a, like an emergency call. So as soon as they get into the office, they call another administrator who's at home they suggest what time they're going to be leaving um, and they're supposed to phone then when they're leaving. So and if they don't leave at that time and don't get a phone call, then we get someone to visit the office and see if everything's okay, just from a safety point of view. So I think we're there. Um, Obviously, we've only experimented it for now, two days now. So hopefully it's it's working at the moment, so hopefully it continues to work and we'll try and learn some lessons from this in the long run. So... I think we're geared up to manage now for the next few weeks. Um, hopefully it doesn't go on for too long, but we don't know, do we? So I think we're geared up to do that. Obviously what we can't do, um, the consultants can't go out and meet people. I and mean, Obviously we're not doing that. Um, the trouble is because of that, is then we're obviously not earning any money, although we do look after people's money. We do have some income, so obviously there's going to be a twenty. 20- Say, there's gap at least in income coming in the next few months. So you've just got to go there somehow. It is what it is and
0: let's deal with it. Absolutely. It's thrown up a whole um, new raft of challenges for business leaders, um, not just um, operationally in day-to-day work, but also um, with yeah. finance in the future. And there is a lot of uncertainty at the moment. Um, but given the measures that the government have um, announced and put in place, especially financially to support business, is that cause for encouragement, do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We had, um, we had a new administration staff start um, a week and a half ago. So, um, very experienced, worked with IFAs before. So, exactly the sort of person we wanted. Um, because it's administrative now, not just administrative in our industry. We actually have to be quite technically qualified now. So, which also has admin effect, they actually cost a lot more money. Well, because they initially have to get used to our processes and the software we use, certainly the first few months are just training-based. So, poor lady just started and um, no one really can train her. Luckily, she's quite proactive. She can do a lot of training herself and um, we've put in place some training aspects for for her at home. But certainly, one, she's training, so therefore there's, there's no production there at all, no work being done as such. But certainly the 80% going towards her income will certainly help. In that particular instance, it'll help enormously um, because obviously the choice was because she couldn't be productive to relay her off again after she just started for two days. So in that way, it would be a big, big, big help as long as it can actually go through. And administration is not too too much just to get the thing through and then you don't feel like, oh, well, you know, we manage because it doesn't come out the other end. So hopefully, the administration will actually go through quite and it's it's perfect for that situation where the lady would have potentially been um, let go because she just started and we couldn't be in the office to help her. So in that situation, it's a perfect scenario to keep people employed. So yeah, in that way, it would work perfectly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, it's been a few months, of course, even since um, you appeared in the uh, the parliamentary review. Um, in yeah. your article, for those listeners who haven't read it, um, you do say that one particularly difficult challenge um, is changing regulations within the industry. Um, is this still weighing down on the sector, and how so? Just for the benefit of the listeners, hugely, um, hugely
1: the the media itself. I think I said in. The article, the media doesn't help. Um, I think from from the listener's point of view, most complaints to the FDA do not come from independent financial advisors. They generally come from, from other sources. So we, we need to be there. The trouble is that the media wants uh, costs to come down everywhere. What happens, and it's happened in the companies itself, they've brought their charges down, but what it means is Less people there to talk to. We try and we try and get through to different insurance companies on the telephone because we need to speak to someone. And I have people in the office are waiting thirty, forty, fifty minutes on the telephone just to get an answer. So from that perspective, it weighs heavily down. But because people want and the media want the charges to come down, the opposite is happening in the industry. The FCA costs are going up. They're expensive. The insurance indemnity insurance has just gone through the roof. Um, so if i if I generalise, when the renewals come through for ours in the industry, they were five times as much coming through. So our industry or our company, we were paying about thirty thousand a year. So potentially, we could have gone from thirty thousand a year for indemnity insurance to one hundred and fifty thousand. That was just ridiculous. Luckily. I'm pleased because we we try and do things as well as we can and perfect as we can, we got two times. It's still twice as expensive as what it was last year. So the staff costs are going up because of the legislations that go up, because of um, industry regulation, we need to give much, much clearer insights to the clients, and that's right. But Obviously, then that costs more money. We have to put in new software that can take two years to put in and then you have to train it and get used to it so we're doing everything we can but not only does it, you then need to spend out on the software you have to then spend out on the administration staff they become more technically qualified so one you need to spend more on staff wages two you need to spend more on software and licenses and three you actually need more people hence we've just employed someone else again so The costs are huge, but within the industry, within the FCA, the uh, financial compensation scheme, with their limits going up from fifty dollars 60, to 60000 to 350000 to the indemnity insurance going up, and I'm generalising. We go away with twice as much, but some companies, um, their insurance premium went up five times as much for the year, and some companies couldn't get insurance at all. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's very difficult to fight any of that because you try and comply all the time. But if it continues, we'll have a country with no IFAs and um, what we'll end up with is just four or five big players who, in my view, don't really treat the clients as well, well as they should be treated. That's so the way we would all want to be treated. So in my opinion... But I think the IFAs in this world, in this in this country, do a very, very good job. And they don't become don't just have clients, they also become very close friends on the basis you actually know these people, these clients or customers for five, ten, twenty years and they become very close friends and need to be taken care of and they value the reassurance, especially right now, they really value the reassurance that we can give them of saying, don't panic, don't take your money out, you'll miss the bounce. They just generally want someone to talk to and the best will in the world. They're not going to be able to talk to a big insurance company. They need someone that they can, they feel they can trust and they can feel they can rely on that will get back to them when they say they're going to get back to them and give them just good, honest, up-to-date advice. about their own resources, treating it as if it was their own money. So, the danger to the IFA world is that the cost of it will, will take us out of the equation and we'll have to sell to a big player and, and I for one don't want to do that I've looked at all of them mm-hmm. I don't think what they offer is good value and it's certainly not good value for clients in my opinion they get lost in a in a mire of um, trying to deal with bigger companies when actually what they want is to find to phone someone up who they can trust and have a relationship with so costs Going up in that way will destroy the independent financial advice world.
0: Absolutely. Um, It's good to, of course, um, have a few cases in point and really shed some light on how the costs of compliance with um, the Financial Conduct Authority are really making it hard for uh, businesses. Um, If we move aside to um, another issue that you also uh, highlighted, um, you did say as well, Stephen, that um, in the article, it would be fantastic for more women to actually become actively involved in the profession as well. Um, Can you perhaps tell me about some of your hopes for that in a bit more detail and maybe even some of your own experiences with female colleagues as well, just for the benefit of the listeners?
1: Yes, yes that's a really good question. It's um I've had a lot of experience working with um female financial advisors. Um I grew up working for prudential and um out of my six consultants I had four of them were women and I've never had such good production. That's not because they worked any harder than men. It's because people trust women. It's just a natural phase. And I think some of the block in people not seeking financial advice is, is, is one, they don't know who to trust. And secondly, they don't know where to go. I think if they could see a sector that was have a few more female people in it, I think it would attract um, a lot more people into our sector to get, personal advice, which I think generally what people need, even sort of basic advice. Um, so I have a lot of experience we have um We have had some female um, consultants in the past, and they've been very, very successful, sometimes too successful because they've then gone and worked on their own. So they're very successful. But the main thing that happens is that people trust women. And I don't know why there's not more women in the industry. It's a, it's a perfect industry female they, they yes there's a lot of work to do to understand how the how we, how crazy industry works, but once they get into it, they will really enjoy it because it's not about just what you know it's about relationships and linking with people and helping people feel reassured who they're dealing with, and women are naturally better at, at that than men, and I think that you know costa the the country people trust women more, for you know one reason or another. But that's the fact of it. So I would implore them to try and look at this industry because it's a huge opportunity for them right now. We have um, my partner, my business partner, Rob, uh Rob Salter, his daughter has just done her qualification. She's just about to do her last one, but it's just got delayed because of this situation. Um, but once she's qualified. She will be fully qualified in the next few months. She will then be our power planner with us. And once she's done a few years' power planning, she will then become a financial consultant, and she'll be a very good one. And um, so I, encourage, I would encourage women to look at this, this avenue because I don't think they even look at it or even know it's there until they actually see it. So it's really, really good industry for women just because of that. It's not just about finances. It's about people
0: and the uh, relationships with people, which which women are very good at. For sure. Sense. for sure, absolutely. And in terms of getting more women involved in the industry, um, how can the industry become more enticing for those women who are weighing up um, their career options um, a little bit earlier in life? Do you think it is the industry's role to maybe try and reach out to those people or do you think that help can come from elsewhere in that respect?
1: Um, I think it is the industry's responsibility. I think it's everyone's responsibility. I think um, it's it's a culture thing. It's it's a culture that seems to attract men to us or something that men think they need to go into. But hopefully it's now changing. Some women maybe look at it and think it's just finance, but it's it's not. It's about people. I think it is our responsibility to try and get more people in. We really try to get um, women involved because we know just from a business point of view, it's really profitable and we know, you know, they're going to work hard and do a really good job and get on with people. So from a business point of view, it's actually profitable for us to get more women involved. But yeah, is it it our responsibility? Yeah, of course it is. We take, take that on board, don't we?
0: Mm. And it ties really nicely into um, the next thing um, we're going to touch on as well, because one of the issues that you did highlight in that review article as well, was that the lack of understanding from young people about the finance sector is another huge problem, not just for recruitment, and um, but also people don't think it's necessarily an option for them. This can tie in, can't it? People playing a role, not just to reach Absolutely. out to male youngsters, yeah. but female youngsters as well, and try Absolutely. and essentially kill two birds with one stone in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my, my history is looking after um with prudential I used to look after independent schools and universities and local government. Whether we had the ABC, the additional voluntary contribution contract with them. and I should to say to the schools I looked after and once I left Prudential working for with Affinity, I'd encourage the schools to say, you know, what about the kids? Do they want and we'd offer them we'd offer them free lessons just say just go have a bit of fun with, you know, what's this and have just a bit of fun and say say things like, um, you know, what's what do you know about this? And they say it's a bit boring, they would say and I'll say, Well, what's fun? and they'd probably say holidays and buying things and getting a new game on 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 on, on the computer. So, so what do you need to get them? You need some money. So we're not talking about finance, we're talking about fun to be able to get these things and and we'd you know, the one I did do, it, it went down really well. It's really good fun. Generally, though, the schools will say they don't want, you know, an unknown man walking through their school, even though um, I've looked, looked after the school for four or five years. But generally, it's just another job for this is how it comes over, another job for the school to do. It's not in national curriculum. It's not really um, a university course, so they, some places do do some universities do do financial courses. It's a huge industry and it's a big opportunity for people to be able to get into it. We've just, last September, we just recruited um, uh, a 24-year-old who'd been to Manchester, not the university, but I think it's called the Metropole, Manchester Metropole, um, who got qualified in finance. And, and he went to university in Manchester, but he lived in Newcastle. And he worked for an IFA in Newcastle and then moved down to London to see how he could get on. And he's an absolute diamond, been absolutely brilliant for us. And it's because someone's looked at it, found it interesting, and followed it, followed it through. And so if a young 24-year-old who's going to be really important to our company in the next few years, can see that side of it and he's been so good, then I think it should be much more of an academic subject. Not hugely, maybe, but it should certainly touch on it a little bit more. Um I, I've i got a teenage daughter, my our youngest. You know, the chief will lose her Oyster card or lose her bank card and it's frustrating that, you know, they, they've got these little things they don't totally realise how important it is to protect their, their PIN numbers from cyber crime, etc. Just little things like that. And savings. Savings are not meant to be boring, they're meant to be quite exciting. You can buy these things that people enjoy and it gives people choices. But savings is not about saving, it's about choices. Children don't understand some of this, I don't think, and it's a, it's a shame it's not it's just a bit in our academic curriculum actually go over and maybe that might push them towards understanding a little bit more, a little bit more education, and then maybe they might go to university and start learning it and get qualified in it, which would then promote the industry even more. There's certainly not enough of us. I know when I with Prudential in the early 80s, I think there was 85,000 um, consultants about in the country. I think it's down to about 23,000, 24,000 now probably because of the increased um, qualification standards needed in 2013, probably because we have to disclose fees, and they're called fees and not commissions now. So some of that come into it. Banks, from banks you can't get financial advice from because of that. Only can. um I think it should be pushed a lot more, the education side of it, even just the basics. Of you know, protecting your bank card, protecting your register card, just basic stuff like that. Um, and little bits added on to that, like um, where to find the best mobile phone deal, just bits and pieces that helps people understand that uh, money and finance is important. It's not about money and finances, it's about choices in this world. And um, hopefully, we get through this virus so we have these choices again.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's such an interesting point that um, education should take more of a responsibility in introducing even the basics at a very early age. And it is, I think, Mm. food for thought, especially for the likes of uh, Gavin Williamson as well, especially when, as you've said, the industry is trying to reach out and trying to get into schools, trying to play its part in that sense, but sometimes isn't necessarily greeted with the greatest amount of approval.
1: I think for the best reasons. I think they're just trying to protect the kids, which is their main Mm. main job today but I think it's slightly blinkered shall
0: we say Mm, I would agree with that absolutely Um, Stephen as well um, this podcast itself is also of course about um, effective leadership um, amongst other things Um, if we take the word leader what does that word mean to you especially in a business context Um, it
1: makes me smile the word leader I think it's um, I, i Obviously, I see myself as a leader, but I don't see it in that sort of frontline part of it. I think leading is a, about giving and looking at things from a, a personal point of view and doing the right thing. And I think when people see that generally, most of the time, unless you can, it can be helped, can't be helped, that you're trying to do the right thing and make the right decisions. I think that's leading. I think today, last lately, we've seen what's the right thing to do. The right thing to do, even though it's going to cost us dear, is to get people working at home. The right thing is to make sure they're okay, make sure they're safe, get things into the office to keep them safe. I think that's leading. I don't think it's about the big wow, well, well, at the front. I think it's about doing the right thing, being there, Letting people know that you can trust them and that takes a while to happen. Mm-hmm. Letting people know that you're honest with them, and I don't mean honesty in saying you got to say we have we have a saying. You say say what you feel, but that works both ways, and we mean it. We say you know, tell us if we're doing something wrong, but likewise, if you're doing something wrong, we'll tell you as well. I think people respect that, and I think that's about being a leader about being honest and uh, having some integrity. It's not about the raw and the loud voice. It's about honesty and integrity.
0: Absolutely. In my opinion. Absolutely. And, um, good and effective leadership, um, even in, um, that sort of sense, it can go under the radar a little bit in this country, can't it? Because we th- when, when people think about leaders, a lot of people think about leaders in the public eye. So, for example, like of Boris Johnson and sports personalities yeah. such as Wayne Rooney, um, we could say, um, that in mind, do you think that good and effective leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK, given that so many good examples can often go unseen?
1: Um, no, obviously, I think what happens is that media picks them out to see how you know what can we what can we find them, and we see it in the media all the time the way people get treated. And generally, um, the lady who just died, that's a, Carolyn Flack. That's a prime example of someone who was just trying to get on in life, and obviously had her own issues, and the media. <laughs> killed her is um, I don't think he's celebrated enough I think um, I like Boris I think he's I think he's good for the country I think his um, this might not be this I think this could be his one of his one of his successes this virus but that's not what he's good at he's good at making people feel good and saying oh, Great Britain's a great country that's, his, that's what he's good at um, so everyone there's different types of leaders Different types of leaders, I think. I think it's not celebrated enough. I think it's certainly not respected enough. Yes, things should be investigated if, if something happens. Without, a doubt obviously. But I think I think we shouldn't. I think the media has got a lot to blame for pulling people down and making life a, a lot more difficult than what it should be. And certainly, when we see it now, it just sounds like someone. I'm I'm, I'm a football fan. I follow Fulham. Mm. Fulham Football Club, and certainly I've saying to my friend. Who I go with. I said, we won't have a, you know criticise this player again. We just celebrate the fact that they're there and we can enjoy it. Well, I don't think there's enough celebration of how hard people work to get to that level. Um, We're talking about Boris Johnson. Mm. You know people forget how hard he's actually had to work to get where he is. It's not because he's. Had some money behind him because he's actually worked really hard and has a commitment to things. And I think people shouldn't put him down for whatever. Um, I think he's. I think he's. I think he's good for the country. You know, I think he's good for the country, and I think he's not celebrated enough. I'm not saying people shouldn't be investigated if things go wrong, but certainly we shouldn't be so quick to criticise and then so quick to follow up with something else again. But so yeah, they should be celebrated, celebrated a lot more.
0: Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned Boris um, especially um, because um, his um, leadership has come under so much scrutiny. Um, A lot of people do approve of the approach that he's taken, um, following the science, of course, being less hands-on and then sort of seeing how things develop before bringing in harsher measures. Um, Do you think um, that that would be your sort of style of leadership as well there, Stephen? Would you tend to sort of let things play out a little bit before taking action or would you take more sort of the Xi Jinping, Giuseppe Conte approach of really jumping on top of things forcing lockdowns and making t- decisions quickly
1: yeah it, it depends on what it is it's, um, it depends on if something's something that's unkind and obviously wrong I would jump on it quickly um, I don't think people generally mean to be unkind I don't think people generally mean to do the wrong thing I think generally they come from a good place um, and I think I think we can we're seeing that in what's going on in the world at the moment. Generally, people come from a good place. Um, so sometimes I would play it. It depend on what it was. I would, sometimes I might just play it out and see what see what's happening and try and understand both sides. There's always another side to the story. Um, I would, it depends on what the situation was. I think you have to look at it individually. But I think we should accept that generally people come from a good place um, and
0: not from a, a bad place. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so sort of staying on the topic of uh, Boris Johnson and um, leaders who are in the public eye um, like he is, um, are there any examples of figures like him, living or dead, who've uh, perhaps inspired you? Um, I'm not, I, as Boris
1: has inspired me. Probably, yes, because I think he's a leader. Um who else inspires me. My mom, my mum and dad inspire me. Because of the the love they give. I think it's to do with you know genuine love. The so people like that would inspire me. Um apart from that, I can't say anyone in particular. But I I'm a great believer in in uh, people who come from a good place generally. Um I just talked to my wife walking the, the dog this morning um we spoke to our friends who walked by. To, um, spoke to them three metres apart as you do, um, and we've not we've probably known them a couple of years, but they're givers. They give people. They give to people. So the husband is a football coach for the local team, and, and the wife does um, equipment um, for massage and and how to think. Basically, they're givers. So they, people like that inspire me because. Are the ones who give to the world and give to people. So, generally, nothing is. Sometimes there's not so many of them. Guys don't see them, but only people who give inspire me
0: absolutely and it links back as well to what we discussed earlier about uh, the idea of leadership often going unseen because these sorts of people family members and uh, maybe colleagues who have been inspirations to you throughout your career they aren't in the public eye and that can very much go unnoticed um i do yeah, promise absolutely. to um stop talking about uh, boris johnson very shortly but one thing that i heard <laughs> that you fine. did mention Stephen, um was yeah. the fact that he is an incredibly positive personality um clearly loves the country he's trying to create that aura of positivity um, in a business context, do you think it's important for um a business leader such as a managing director a CEO to create an environment of positivity which will really allow everyone around them to flourish as well?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's um Yeah. Yeah, um yeah, sometimes you you think who who motivates the motivator. So but certainly we would both me and my wife is a director of the company as well. Certainly, me and Kim would never go into the office and talk about things or bits and pieces we have to deal with. Obviously, we have stuff personally to deal with as well. I certainly would never take it in the office. Um, other people do. I think sometimes you just have to have a quiet word with them say um and listen to them and understand it. But it's not meant for office talk generally unless it's in a quiet place. So is it our role to do that sort of thing? Absolutely because who else have they got to go to? I people do really appreciate that. I think it's to to do with being open and honest and with with people, and it's to do with giving. I think we should all give a bit more sometimes. Definitely definitely a role for someone, um, without a doubt, in my view. And I think, well, I, I don't think I know the reason why we retain so many staff and staff don't generally leave us at all is because... They trust what's going on. I think it's really, really, really important.
0: Absolutely. Um, Stephen, I am conscious um, of running out of time, uh, but before we do uh, wrap things up, um, perhaps you could tell us what the next 12 months hold for yourself or Affinity Financial Advisors and what you do hope to accomplish in that time.
1: For the next 12 months? Um, well both me and my wife have said directors of the company we'd like to sort of we're working to that end this is why we um, we looked at the our new guy from Newcastle. we spoke about he's very very good um, we've also got um, another guy who wrote with Aaron Shishon who's um, just 40 years old who he will be a director very shortly and is, is someone I want to take over from me so we we certainly don't want to sell the business. We want to move it down to people who we think have got the right attributes, are givers, are honest um, and can take over with it. And, and from a business perspective, I think we we see more profit in it for us in doing that rather than just selling it. And with that, selling our clients as well. And We don't really want to do that. We want to stay involved um, as long as we can, really, keep our minds active. Um, From a business perspective, I would hope we can fight this virus thing. Obviously, we can't earn the money that we need to earn without going to see people, so we would hope we can relax it in three to six months. (laughs) We would hope. Um, We're trying to keep bits and pieces going and doing things online as we can. But I think once we can get out of this, I think not just our business, but I think the whole country will boom. With, um, with, with the fact of happiness that we can get out of this and the fact that our business will start to make a profit again. I think there will be some challenges of in income, Why? for sure. I think there might be some challenges on on our... Um, we have to provide something called a capital adequacy to the firm, financial firm. I think there might be some challenges there. I think yesterday could come out and give us a bit of latitude on things like that. We haven't heard from them on that side of it. Um. So from a business point of view, I think there's we've, we've got probably three or four people have only been with us a couple of years. So this is quite a challenge for them in building their own businesses this time. So I would hope if we can come out of this um, with everything intact, I think um, our plans to move forward from an IT perspective and uh, um client and staff perspective should be very, very positive and, uh I think the industry could be great is it's it's great now, but it could be even better um and I certainly would want a our company to carry on and not be sold into one of the big conglomerates of uh platforms as they call them we want to keep it as a separate i f a firm um deal with people and uh help them understand their finances so they can make you know reasonable informed decisions with a bit of reassurance. So I see, see things positive. Um, I don't like the alternatives to that, so I see things being really positive. And I see a big boom in the industry and the country once we can get through this fire situation um, and do that by pulling together. Um, we have another saying in the company, we talk about rowing boats. So the boats are, everyone's in the same boat. Everyone has to row. And no, no one must kick a hold of the bomb. And that's very much how we Absolutely. try to work. And hopefully, it will work in the next few months and we we'll better move forward. But well, I'm quite optimistic about the future. In fact, I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm very optimistic about the young people we've got in our company moving it forward. So, yeah, I'm very, very
0: optimistic. That's fantastic to hear. And let us hope as well that we do um, embark on the upturn sooner rather than later once um, the present situation starts to uh, blow over. Oh, um, yeah, Steve, we'll hope so. Yes, it, it's been um, an absolute pleasure, Stephen, uh, having you on the uh, the programme. It's also been incredibly insightful. And I think it would be fantastic to even have you back on the programme in a few months' time just to see how things have panned out retrospectively in that regard. So thanks. Yeah, so,
1: so kind. Much. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Um a
0: pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, Stephen, thank you. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Stephen, and especially learning more about the challenges facing the sector and how the whole team at Affinity are continuing to raise standards in spite of these unprecedented times. If you've not heard it before, we'll now be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz first joined PIMFA as chief executive in 2014, back when it was known as the Wealth Management Association. With 30 years of financial services experience, which includes 19 years as a chief exec, Liz has been transforming and advising businesses through reshaping strategy, rebranding, change management and inspirational leadership for years. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Liz. Here it is now.
2: I'm Jonathan White and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today.
3: No, thank you for inviting me.
2: No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a, a great place to start if we may... Is it maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners? Obviously, Pimfer does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course, it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago, and of course, Mapfer um, um, and uh, the WMA were merged.
3: That's right. Yes, um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of. Uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually, but you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now
2: and the uh probably a very wise move because uh the the uh has uh, been going from strength to strength uh since uh what would you say at the moment uh is are are the priorities uh, for yourselves there
3: um i think there are a number of priorities i mean we represent a diverse group of um of businesses which all have one thing in common which is that they face the clients they they face the consumer um so whether that is face to face or whether that is um online It's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, But we're going through uh, a number of of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a a, a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, It's it's very challenging um, to... um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world, so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and, uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um if you have that as a backdrop uh and then politically you have what's going on um with post brexit uh and where the rules are going to come from in future. All of that is still to be negotiated, um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face.
2: Oh, without a doubt, I think uh, maybe Liz, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it?
3: Okay, so I think – I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools – um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um I think there there the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think, it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think, uh, it's, go- it's just, it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is, is that we have more, um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum because that will also then bring it to life uh for young people for uh, youngsters and you know school kids it will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments which we so badly need in our, in, 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 in our, yes. um, in our country.
2: Without a doubt, Liz, because, again, you've hit the nail on the head, because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can, as you pointed out, very well. Uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think, as um, uh, it, for example, uh, with with the new government, we have there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely. Regarding what you could consider a full, a, a a far more applied mathematics in a lot of uh, the system, but t- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to, Liz. Yes, but I think we, you're right. <laughs> we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um, now, looking at and a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years uh we're talking of course 3 months after 2 months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the conservative party and therefore at least we have now uh left the european union without, without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here at uh, least is there a hope now that because of that clarity we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market and what are your hopes for the next 12 months
3: um i think i think that that we've still got a little way to go because um whilst you know 31st of january came and went um you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period we're now in a transition period mm-hmm. um and for for uk um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually, for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets. And we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a, one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book. That makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an. Uh, we think that there's an opportunity there, with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter mm. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments, um, um in, Euro- in Europe, England or U- the UK rather and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rulebook or a rulebook that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model, of in- intermediation that we have here that have caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rule maker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, <laughs> and optimistic about the market, <laughs> <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, and. To we see where we go to with that, uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst it's the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous,
2: fellows, aren't
3: they? indeed, I mean, absolutely, um, absolutely. So, we've still got to wait and see, I think,
2: it, absolutely. Um, and it will be a, uh interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you've you, you mentioned there uh, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know. Uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA. Um, are they, at the moment, doing their job correctly?
3: Um, I think part... I, th- I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, uh, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or you know the lifeboat yes. funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays, but the polluters have, have long since folded by mm. the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms Are paying for bad firms, so the system we believe is broken, Um, and and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, You know what is it that that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big, so that you know what is the nature of risk that all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, We're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better.
2: Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could. <laughs> um what would be your number one priority if we if we were to if i were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform
3: in terms of reform mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean um i think oh goodness me the one thing um it is a bit of a mean I, question uh, it <laughs> is gosh yes wow um i, I think it's about the regulatory primi- perimeter sure. um i i think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter um which is you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off.
2: Great. Now uh, b- I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a, a little step back and uh, a, and look at um, uh, the operations of Pimfer again, it's what Pimfer do, it does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. C- can that really, Liz, be underestimated? The importance of Having those working relationships with with the departments and the organisations that you do have.
3: No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. Mm. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is Pimfer. Uh, I mean, we talk about that. You know, the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation. Uh, And we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do.
2: Without a doubt. And I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think because of the time here, we... We I, I must start to wrap up, but um, perhaps I can ask Liz. Looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it, nonetheless?
3: Um. So I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we we have been lobbying um uh, a fair bit on this but because of brexit um our ability to actually kind of get into um see the policy makers f- on both sides i think to have that dialogue has been a challenge um but we're finding that that is changing that you know they they want to hear from us so i think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter um, and what does, what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those, those two, um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year, having said that um you know we have a manifesto that 's got six that 's got six pillars in it um and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um kind is just one of those things there are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector. As a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future regulation, future supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial future.
2: Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year. Uh, has not been in a while that will determine the future of all of those things and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks Um, but it's been (laughs) an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things
3: Thank you, I would love to do that
2: Thank you very much Thank you
0: As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I and Jonathan hope you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, Jonathan and I would normally be off to the Westminster Arms now to raise a glass to raising standards. But as it is with all of the pubs being closed, Jonathan's front room is simply going to have to do for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.